Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 24? And I'm just going to ask you to keep that open today as we uh, take a look at it. We are starting a new series today that is called God's at War. It's an all-church ABF series, so we're going to be doing some follow-up, and you'll see some DVDs in our ABFs uh, today and for the next six weeks. And it's really, it's a series that uh, deals with idolatry, looks at the idols in our heart, in our life. It's a good follow-up to what we talked about this summer about revival, because if revival is to come, God needs to do a work in us and deal with those issues that may be holding us back from following him fully. So let me pray uh, as we begin, and then we'll move into the message. Father, as we come to you today, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for the report that Americo and Kathy shared and for their faithfulness through the years to serve you in making disciples in Latin America. And Father, I pray you'd continue to bless them. Thank you for bringing them through their health concerns this past uh, year and for the strength you have given them. And I pray that as they plan for both the mission aboard as well as this conference in Quito, that you would just guide each of the details and provide all that will be needed for that. Thank you that we as a church can be a part of it through the work that you are doing there. And we want to continue to lift them up with our prayers. And Father, as we come to your word today, would you speak to us both in this time and in our ABFs as we meet to gather and to talk about um, just the things that get in our way sometimes of following you. We want to be a people that follow you with all our heart. So help us to hear your word today. Amen. When we think about idolatry, what comes to your mind? What's the, what's the thing that you think about when you hear the term idolatry? For many people, they think about little statues, little, you know, figurines of deities that people will set up in certain places and that they bow down and worship. We think about that in the Old Testament when we read the stories of how uh, people would worship the Baals or how these Baals, these idols, were uh, by every tree, every field. They kind of had these places where they worship Baal and hope that he would give them good crops, fertility, keep the storms away, all those kinds of things. And we look at that and we wonder, well, is that still present today in our world? Well, yes, it is. A number of years ago when Gail and I went to Thailand, uh, we were there, and one of the things that was very apparent when you drive through the cities or out in the village areas are all these shrines, little statues, little Buddhas that are there or other deities. They have spirit houses where they worship ancestors or want to appease the spirit so that they too can have good crops, or live without fear because they, they fear these spirits and what they might do if they're not faithful to uh, kind of honor them in their life. And their idols are very visible. But what about us? You know, what, what about us? We may not see them as easily, but they are still there. We have our own gods of money and sex and power. You know, we may not kneel before a goddess Aphrodite, but when you think about what happens in our world, there are many young women every year who struggle with depression and eating disorders because they want to be thin and beautiful. 
I mean, they, they just struggle with that. They've got this image in their mind of what you're supposed to look like, and if they don't quite feel like they measure up, you know, they're buying in and they're wanting to be like this image that they have in their mind. Well, that's a whole lot like worshiping a goddess, Aphrodite. And I think about men who want to be rich or successful and who will sacrifice everything. They'll sacrifice their time, their family, their health even, to pursue a goal that they think is going to give them meaning or purpose in life, and they devote themselves so fully to this that they'll put everything else on the altar. Well, isn't that a little bit like worshiping a god of mammon, of money? Do you remember Bernard Madoff, that name that was in the news so much? He was arrested in 2008 and sent to prison for a Ponzi scheme that he had created. He stole millions of dollars from his investors, retirement funds, pension funds, just uh, took it all with this elaborate scam that he had developed where it looked like he was paying very handsome rewards to certain people on the front end, and all the while he was living a lavish lifestyle. Well, it's sad what's happened to his family. Two years after that came out and he went to prison, uh, his son, Mark, who had been involved with him in the investment committee, took his own life. He hung himself in his home while his two-year-old son was in another room in the apartment. And then Andrew, his other son, just this last week died, passed away this past week. And Andrew said this, Andrew was first diagnosed with lymphoma in 2003, and it had gone into remission. But he said the stress of his father's scandal and all the stuff that went with it, he said, brought back his cancer. And Andrew said, you know, the scandal and everything in it killed my brother quickly, and it is killing me slowly. And on Wednesday, he passed away. You know, I look at that. Here was a man who put everything on the altar, if you will. You know, he was going to give everything to be successful, to live this lavish lifestyle, to think that he could be, you know, one of the best, one of the greatest in terms of finances, and he lost it all. There are idols in our world, too, and these gods are fickle. They are capricious. They are demanding, and they war for your soul. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, first of all, we need to recognize and remove the idols in our lives, and that's what this passage deals with. Look at Joshua 24. I'm going to read part of it, beginning at verse 1. And then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, and they worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, and I led him throughout Canaan, and I gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. And then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians, but what I did there, and I brought you out. 
And when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. And he brought the sea over them and covered them. And you saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. And then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, the son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. And then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as also did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, and you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from them, eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, and throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. What Joshua does in this passage is he recounts the history of Israel, their sacred history. This is Joshua's farewell address to the people. Remember, Joshua was the man that God had chosen to lead the Israelites into the promised land after Moses had died. Joshua is a warrior. Joshua is the one who led the armies of Israel as they went against their foes. But it was God who gave them victory. It was God who did all of these things. I mean, you could hear it when I read that passage. God says, I gave you, I removed, I delivered, I did these things. They had to fight their battles, but their battles were won by the power of God. Joshua is now 110 years old. He knows he's going to die soon, and he is concerned about his people. His main concern is spiritual apostasy, that they are going to fall away from God, that they will intermarry with the Canaanites around them, that they'll begin to worship these false gods, because he knows that even though all of their enemies have been subdued, they have not been completely removed. And he's worried about what's going to happen. And so he reminds them of their history, reminds them of what God has done, and he calls them to worship the one true God. He tells them about Abraham. Abraham grew up in idolatry, and God called him, and Abraham needed to leave all of that behind. When your forefathers were in Egypt and they were in bondage, the Egyptians worshipped all kinds of gods. But do you remember the miracles that I performed, each one directed at a different Egyptian deity? And I demonstrated my power, that I alone am God, and you can trust me. God brought them out with his mighty hand. God delivered them from the Amorites. God gave them the promised land. And Joshua says, remember, and do not turn from him. God calls us to do the same thing to honor him above all, to put him first in our life and to worship him alone and to follow him. 
But we struggle at times with idols, with temptations. In our world, in this life, we can struggle and we can uh, get drawn into that where we lose our focus on what is most important and keeping our eyes on Him. What are the idols in our lives? Well, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It is anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol could be money, could be your work, it could be sexual pleasure, it could be fame, it could be power. It could be hobbies or leisure activities that take on a bigger place in our life than they should. It could be beauty, it could be sports. It can be anything, even good things that we do for the wrong reasons. I mean, it can even be ministry. If that becomes sort of the thing that you are drawn into and want to do because you think it brings recognition to you, and you do it for yourself rather than for the Lord, it has become an idol in our life. An idol is whatever you look to for security, for comfort, for meaning, significance other than God. You know, if we love what we do, we love our work, that's a good thing, but it needs to be subordinated to the Lord. Our work isn't to be this kind of thing that we put first in our life and it dominates our time and our thinking and all that we do. In the same way, we can love and enjoy sports, but sports aren't to be the thing that dominates our life where that's what we look forward to every Sunday. That's the thing that's the high point of our week instead of our worship of God and our relationship with Him. How do we know when something's become an idol in our life? Well, in the ABF series, you're going to have some of these questions brought up too. But it's asking ourselves, really, you know, when I look at how do I spend my time and money, what are the priorities in my life? And what does it say if someone were to look at my bank account or my checkbook and how I spend my money? What do I turn to for comfort in life? Where do I turn when I'm down? You know, last week, or a couple weeks ago, I should say, we had the Minnesota Teen and Adult Challenge Choir here, you know, and they shared testimonies of how they struggled with addictions. And there's a whole lot of people, when they're discouraged or down, and life isn't going very well, can turn to alcohol or drugs for something that's going to be a comfort to them. And it begins to dominate their life, and that takes over. And it's not what God desires for any of us. So what do we desire? Who do we want to please? Who comes first in our life? Are we willing to let God examine our heart and show us the answers to those questions? You see, the Bible calls us to follow the Lord with all our heart. To follow the Lord with all our heart. And so when Joshua assembled all of the people, that's when he gave this command. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away your gods, the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. In verse 15 he said, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You know, Joshua is saying, let's just 
Let's just put it out there on the table. Let's be honest about it. Let's not try and be half-hearted and sort of cover our bases and things. But listen, it's either the Lord or it's these other gods. Who are you serving? And where are you going to take your stand? Is it you're going to give everything to the Lord and you're going to follow him wholly? Or are you going to try and live this kind of divided life and compromise and worship and serve other gods? God comes first. In the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And when Jesus was asked the question about what's the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Joshua challenged the people to do that, to fear the Lord, which means honor him, revere him, and serve him faithfully. Throw away the gods your forefathers worship. Now, when I read that the first time, I'm thinking, you know, this is about 25 years after all the battles have been settled, the major conflicts in the promised land. 40 years before that, they wandered in the wilderness, so it's about 65 years or more since they witnessed the miracles that God did in bringing them out of Egypt. And they're still holding on to the gods of their forefathers? I'm going, what's up with this? What's up? I mean, what that says to me is how easy it is to kind of slip back into the old ways. This danger of idolatry, this danger of temptations like that is always there. And it's easy to slip back into and put your trust or confidence in something else or your trust in yourself and what you are doing rather than in the Lord. You see, it's not just a one-time decision to follow the Lord. It's a choice we make every single day to put him first in our life. Those moments when we have that uh, commitment that is so profound and we trust in Christ or we make a profession of faith and then we follow it in our life, those are important, those commitments we make to the Lord. But every single day we need to make a choice that we're going to live for God and honor him. Joshua called the people to make that choice with all their heart and to demonstrate that in the way that they lived. I want to tell you about a man who had an influence upon me, although I never had the opportunity to meet him, but his story made an impression upon me. Uh, many of you have probably heard of Nancy Lee DeMoss. And Nancy DeMoss is a Christian speaker, author. She's written a lot on brokenness, repentance, putting God first in your life. And, you know, when I think about what she has done and how God's used her, I look back on her family. And it was really the example of her father that set the tone for her. And it's her father that I knew of his story through his involvement with Campus Crusade for Christ. A few years ago, she wrote a blog that talked about her dad. And uh, it was called Taking God Seriously. And here's what she said about her dad. She said, My dad, Art DeMoss, went home to be with the Lord over 30 years ago. It was on the weekend of my 21st birthday that I got the call that he had had a heart attack and was instantly with the Lord. And each year when Father's Day rolls around, I find myself thinking about the legacy he left me how the wisdom, counsel, and instruction he and my mother imparted in my earliest years 
have had an incredible influence on my life. And I want to start with what, for my dad, was the bottom line of everything. Take God seriously. My dad came to know Christ in his mid-20s after years of rebellion, foolish choices, and broken relationships. And from that point until the day he went home to be with the Lord 28 years later, he never got over the wonder of what God had done for him. It never ceased to amaze him that God would have saved him and given him a whole new life. Now, Art was an insurance executive. He lived in the Philadelphia area. He was a layman, but he was wholly committed to following Christ. And she said this. She said, for him, Christianity was not just a compartment of life like school or jobs or hobbies and relationships. Christ was everything. He wasn't part of my dad's life. He was his life. My dad believed that a relationship with Christ is supposed to affect everything we do. It affects our reason for living. It's why we get up in the morning. It's why we exist. The whole goal and purpose of his life was to glorify God, to reflect positively on God, to seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness above all things. My dad felt he owed everything to the Lord. He knew he had no life apart from Christ, so he realized he couldn't call anything his own. His time, his possessions, his influence, his family, his plans, his future, his life, it all belonged to God. And he could never understand how people could be half-hearted or nominal Christians. That whole concept made no sense to him at all. To him, if you were a Christian, you were a new person. And there was simply no reasonable option but to take God seriously. You know, one of the things I remember about Art DeMoss was the commitment he made to follow the Lord in practical ways. And he had these three principles that he lived by. He said that he had made a commitment to give God the first day of every week, the Lord's day. It belongs to him. He gave God the first hour of every day. He would start his day in the word and prayer. He's going to start with that devotion to the Lord and commit the day to him. And then he gave God the first fruits of all that he made, the tithe. He brought to the Lord a tithe and well beyond that in his gifts and offering, but he was going to honor God in all that he did, and God blessed him in an extraordinary way. And I think about that. I think, what a great way to live to be that kind of person who is committed to the Lord, not in a legalistic way here, but, you know, it's not saying that there aren't times when we may have to miss church on a Sunday. But if the habit of your life is such that anything can take you away from church, or when I think about what's going on today uh, for parents and, and our kids, and we had to go through this with the sports on the weekend and the traveling teams and all those kind of things, if that begins to dominate and you're pulling your kids out of church all the time because of sports, what's the message that you're telling them? What is it that you're saying to them? You're sending them a message that, hey, well, maybe God isn't that important. Maybe church isn't that important. It's a message that has unintended consequences that down the road are going to show up. God comes first. First day of every week, first hour of every day, first fruits of all that we make. When you live that way, God blesses it. Art DeMoss passed away at a young age from a heart attack. 
And when he died, there was a funeral service held in Philadelphia where there were over 2,000 people who came to that funeral service. And Art was a man who shared the gospel passionately. And the speaker that day, Dr. Bright, asked those in that, that audience that day, he said, if you came to know Christ through Art DeMoss, I'd like you to stand. And over half the people in that service that day stood. They had come to know Christ through the witness of Art DeMoss. What a powerful legacy. A man who lived by putting God first in his life. And have you made that commitment too? Well, thirdly, we need to rely on God's grace and power to carry out that kind of commitment. This is not something that we can do in our own strength. And it's interesting, the people responded in verse 18 by making this affirmation that we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua, we're going to do it. We're in this. We're with you. And then in verse 19, Joshua gives this curious response. Joshua said to the people that you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. What was Joshua doing there? Why did he give such a, a strange response, you might say, instead of affirming their desire to follow the Lord and saying, all right, that's great. He issued this warning, this challenge. I believe that Joshua was urging them to count the cost. Joshua was asking them to count the cost just like Jesus did with those who followed him. You remember the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9? He said that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Jesus is saying there's a cost to following me. There's a cross to bear. There's self-denial. It means saying no to the things that maybe you once valued or took pleasure and delight in and to say, Lord, I give this all to you. And he changes our heart and our desires. But Jesus also wants us to consider the cost of not following him too. And the cost of not following him is that you may achieve everything that you want in this life and lose your soul. People end up like Bernard Madoff at the end of their life going, what did I do? What have I done? And I pray that he turned to the Lord in his situation, that he repented of the things that he had done and came to Christ. I don't know. God calls us to put him first, and when we do that, God gives us grace and power. In John chapter 15 Jesus tells us that the key to the Christian life is to abide in him, to abide in Christ. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way that we can carry out a commitment to follow him is to walk with him day by day. That's why he's given us his word and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of believers to encourage us 
to keep us strong. And what happens when we put God first in our life? Well, Jesus answered that question too. In Mark 10, 29 and 30, he said, I tell you the truth, that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus rewards those who follow him. So what are the idols in your heart, my heart? I need to ask that too. What's holding us back from following him completely? It's time to throw them away. Will you surrender everything to God and follow him with all your heart? Now, I'm going to ask you to stand as we close today. There's not going to be a closing song. And I came across this prayer by A.W. Tozer that I think is a very fitting way for us to respond to the message, and then we'll be dismissed. So would you pray this with me in unison? Can we read it together? Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. And please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou may enter and dwell there without a rival. And then shall thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself will be the light of it. And there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Thanks.